0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Business Excellence Podcast. My name is Rail Bricker, coming to you from Western Australia, and with me, as usual, my co-host from Brisbane, Australia, Lindsay Adams.
1: Hello and
0: welcome. For a value-added extra, excellencepodcast.com has heaps of free resources for you to download, that is excellencepodcast.com.
1: And today, our guest is coming to us from Sydney, Australia, and is Craig West, CEO and founder of Succession Plus. Welcome, Craig.
2: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: It's um, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Uh, so, Craig, you specialize in business succession and exit planning. That's um, it's a bit of a mouthful. What's. Uh, <laughs> So what is what is it and, and why is that important? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Look,
2: Australia has a large number, as do most of the developed countries in the world, have a large number of baby boomers that are currently heading towards or preparing for retirement. And those baby boomers in Australia that own businesses, what we see and what the academic research shows us is they're generally pretty bad at preparing for exit. They're pretty good at getting in. They're pretty good at running the business, most of them. Many of them have been in business for 20 or 30 years, but they don't spend any time and effort and money preparing for exit because they don't really want to, I guess, at the simplest level, they don't want to think about exiting because exiting for some baby boomers means exit, retire, die. It's like a three-step process, and they don't want to go down that path. So what generally happens is they don't do a lot of preparation. So what we do is help those baby boomer business owners understand what the asset is that they've got, what it might be worth, how they might prepare it, what needs to be done to actually get the business themselves and their finances ready for an exit.
0: So, so Craig, I mean, th- there are a number of views and and um, particular organisations that I've been involved with, like uh, EO, Entrepreneurs' Organisation, who are almost giving, and, and we're not talking of boomers, we're probably talking of, you know, millennials, mm-hmm. I guess, but almost a lot of them are, are singing the mantra now that when you start your business, you have to make sure that you, you've got a view to exiting the business. Um, I mean, you know, that's a complete opposite of, of the boomers that you're helping try and do that. You know, do you think that's, if, if, do you think you really give your heart and soul to the business if you've got one eye on the door when you start it?
2: Yeah, I think you can make better decisions and I think you can get a better overall outcome because, in reality, I mean, I tell people begin with the end in mind. If you're going to go into business today, you need to have a strategy to get out. Now, if you think about let's flip it on its head. Let's say I I was advising you on buying an investment property or I was advising you on buying shares in a bank, right? And I told you, here's the bank and here's the shares and here's the dividends and here's why you should buy it. Here's the investment property and here's how much rent you could get. But by the way, You may never, never, ever be able to exit that investment. No one in their right mind would buy shares in a bank or an investment property if there was no way they could ever get out of it. And yet in business, that's what we've been guilty of doing. We go into the business, we start it, we build it up, we spend all the time, effort and money on growing it and scaling it. And and then we sit there and think, geez, I've got this asset. For many of us, that asset is our largest asset. It's worth more than our home. But we're not really sure we can ever liquidate it or get out of it. To me, that never makes sense. So I think, you know, where we've got, and I know EO and CEO Institute and some of these younger organizations that are mentoring and coaching CEOs and founders are now saying you've got to have one eye on the exit. Because actually, if you look at very successful business owners, that's where they've made a lot of money. Yes, you can make money on the way through and you get dividends, you take money out and invest and so on, but the real money, the big money, is made at the exit at the other end.
1: Right. Well, then how do we go about doing this? What do, where do you start?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing to do, well, A, the first thing to do we've just spoken about, begin with the end in mind, start to think about what does my exit look like? There's a lot of goal setting to be done here, and I don't mean that in some, you know, airy-fairy, I want to make $200 million or anything like that. I think you need to be really clear. Why did you go into business in the first place? Now, for me, I'm not saying to people exit has to be list on the stock exchange for $100 million or sell it to a private equity firm for $50 million. I don't actually care what your exit strategy is. What I need is that you have one. So your exit strategy might well be to build up your business over the next 20 years and pass it on to your two children so they can run it and have a successful family business for their life as well. It's not always about selling it for maximum dollars. Where you've got to start, though, apart from just having an exit strategy, is knowing what you've actually got. Most business owners don't understand the asset they've built up. They've got a business, but they went into business typically, you know, they went into an air conditioning business because they're really good at air conditioning, or they went into, you know, retail because they were really good at jewellery or clothes or whatever it might be. And that doesn't necessarily make them a good business owner. But what you're talking about is an investment asset. It's an asset. A business is an asset. And so you have to understand, what is it worth? How much, you know, what does that mean? Can I get out of it? How do I make it worth more money? How do I protect that asset? You know, it still amazes me. We see businesses that we might have valued for $5 million. And then you ask them about insurance and asset protection and shareholders agreements. And they, oh, I don't know, I haven't got time for that. I'm really busy. You think, wow, if you had a $5 million house, would you have it uninsured? or with no legal agreement about who owns it. True. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. But in business, we make these mistakes pretty regularly, actually, um, because we just don't understand the type of asset we've got and what we can do about it.
0: Okay. So, so Craig, you mentioned two things in there. The one, I want to just relate a funny story, which was um, 20-somewhat years ago when I was in venture capital, I would met up with a – we were an Australian venture fund. We had just listed on the ASX. And we went off to Silicon Valley to meet with other VC funds there. And um, I asked one of the guys, I said, "How do you value a business?" And that's a whole different discussion we can have. But we were talking, you know, in two thousand nine, you know, two thousand two thousand and one, the start of the tech boom, where guys were getting stupid prices for for something that had just been a, a back of the cigarette box uh, idea. Yeah. And what was interesting is I said to them, so how do you value businesses? Because I come out of a traditional business school background. And they said, well, we used to use um, uh, uh, earnings, but no one's earning anything. So we can't use earnings anymore. So we can't use price earnings ratios. So we we used to use price revenue ratios, but none of them have got revenue yet. So we can't use revenue. So we use the PS ratio. And I and I've related the story many times because I said to them, listen, I come out of business school, I've never heard of a PS ratio. And he said, it's the price of the story, and it's always a hundred million. So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that that and that was interesting. So we walked out of that meeting, which was in early 2000, uh, probably just before the tech crash, the first tech, tech crash. crash yep. And the one guy that I worked with who's a well-known fund manager out of Sydney said, let's just get, and we were, you know, early days, the internet, whatever. And he said, just get on and sell every listed share that we own because this market is going to crash if that's how they're talking. So that was just the, the the thing there. But you mentioned something there about, you know, getting the business ready for family succession. Mm. Um, you know, how successful is family succession and, and at what point, you know, in the chain, and, and, and I had clients in South Africa, they were fourth generation in the business, and I'm not convinced they were going to make the fifth generation, because the fourth generation hadn't really learned how to work. Um, you know, at what point do you kind of go, it needs professional management, it can't be under family management?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, because family businesses, particularly ones, if you're talking about third or fourth generation, they've grown quite a lot. They've been around for a long time. They've got reasonable numbers of staff. They've got turnover and customers and all that sort of stuff. At some point, there has to either be a professional manager within the family and there's a whole process around, you know, I often talk to family business owners who've sent their kids off to do an MBA or sent them to uni to to learn about accounting and finance because they're weak in that area. I also talk to people who've basically had their children start At the lowest possible level on the factory floor and work their way through the business so they actually understand how the business works now that's sort of strategy a professionally upskill your children or your family members so they are capable of running the business option b is get a professional manager in we've actually seen quite an increase particularly during COVID, uh, in employee share plans for that exact reason where you've got a family business and suddenly you've got someone who doesn't have the same surname as you not a family member coming in to run that business. you've got to find a different way to incentivize them. And so we're starting to see now and there's lots of examples in the media even at the moment um, of large family businesses that are now transitioning to professional management or they've got an external uh, CEO, et cetera. that is a different framework. and again, I think the same lesson applies though the earlier you start to prepare for that, the better. You can't take a 25 year old son or daughter, who's just finished a uni degree and say, okay, you're now the CEO, that will always end in tears for them and for you and probably for the business as well. But if you've got 10 years to prepare for that, surround them with the right people, give them the right training and experience in what needs to be learnt to run the business, then it can end quite successfully. But you've got to plan for it.
1: It's interesting you're saying that, uh, Craig, as you were speaking about family, I was thinking... But what about key employees who are, you know, growing in the business? What about them? And then you you talk about employee share ownership, and I thought, aha, now that makes sense. But so how does that work? How do we how do we implement that? How do we get the best out of that?
2: Yeah, that's it's one of the things that we're seeing um, a substantial, and I'm talking, you know, four hundred percent increase in the last two years in 400%. inquiry around. increase in inquiry around employee share plans. People are actually realising in most businesses, including mine, there are key people within that business that are absolutely essential to running it. Now, unfortunately, for most privately owned businesses, the founder, me in this case, is one of them, and that's a risk that needs to be managed in and of itself. But I've also got a team of people around me, some of whom are quite important to how I run that business. Now, unless I want to be in an ongoing eBay auction around salary, then the best way to lock those people in, reward them and motivate them going forward is to have them become some kind of owner. Now, I don't necessarily want to sell parts of my business off to employees, but there are specific rules that are coming with very generous tax concessions that allow you to set up employee share plans. They're designed specifically to lock in key people, reward them, motivate them going forward. And ultimately, the ultimate game is not financial it's actually psychology and that is to have employees to think and act like business owners if you can think about a small business that's got let's say a team of 20 people and if you can get four or five of those key people actually thinking about your business the same way you do you get a very different outcome
0: so 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 tell me about um esops uh, or or employee share schemes um the the employees ultimately I know when I last looked at them, which was 20 years ago, a lot of them were sort of phantom share schemes where they only existed whilst an employee. Um, is that still the sort of trend today where you know someone basically has this, this part of the employee share scheme, but it only exists while they're there or in the event of a capital event, it might translate into real shares?
2: Yeah, look, there are still phantom and shadow plans around. That's what those old sort of plans were called. Um, The government changed the rules in 2015. They brought in some new tax concessions for employee share plans, which actually makes it far more attractive to set up a proper employee share plan where the employees get actual equity. And we can do that through a number of different structures without getting too technical. So they're protected from an asset protection point of view. But they do have some elements of what you're talking about, where you know, you might have the ability to to retain those shares, but only while you're an employee. If you leave and go and work somewhere else, you lose the shares. Or you might leave and go and work somewhere else, you use a percentage of the shares, you don't actually get the full benefit. Ultimately, if the plan's designed properly, and that's sort of the most critical part of the whole thing, if the plan's designed properly, it should actually allow you to lock in those key employees. I mean that in a nice way, not in a a bad way, but because the research also shows that employees in employee-owned companies end up being better off at retirement than employees that are in non-employee-owned companies. Not because their salary is necessarily high, but because they've got equity in the business, they get access to things that normal employees don't normally have access to. In other words, the capital growth in the value of the business. If I'm participating, working in a business and helping it grow, and I get some level of participation in that capital gain and growth, Then I'm better off. If I also get access to dividends, because we're making profits on the way through, suddenly I've got a salary, I've got dividends coming in, I've got capital growth on the value of the shares that I own. It's sort of a win win win. And from a business owner's point of view, from the other side of the story, I've also got a win 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 because I know that that employee is not likely to leave anytime soon. I know that they're motivated the same way I am, they're much better aligned with me in terms of our goals and what we're trying to achieve in the business. And ultimately, the business is better off because one of the worst things for business, including financially for business, is employee turnover. If you can cut down employee turnover in any business, financially, you'll perform better. There's no argument about it. The research is very clear. But it's difficult to do that in a tight labour market, which we've still got here in Australia at the moment.
1: So, Craig, you're clearly an expert in this and you've got a lot of experience. Um, I'm just wondering, though, what do employees think wouldn't they say wouldn't they be thinking to themselves i'd rather have cash in the bank or cash in the hand you know to pay off my mortgage rather than shares in a company uh you know i, I can see a sort of mm. an argument here for an each way bet so what's what's your experience what you know you said there's percent yeah, increase in inquiries what's what's the reality
2: yeah and a lot of that inquiry funnily enough comes from employees As much as it comes from employers or business owners, I think there's much more awareness now of what it means to actually buy shares. And look, it's media stories about Zuckerberg and Facebook starting up and, you know, five, ten years later, he's a billionaire. Now, that's not going to happen to very many people at all, hopefully, but... What it does teach you is that there's actually value in owning equity in the business that you work for. And there's lots of examples of people that work for Apple and Google and you name it, all these tech businesses that are actually quite wealthy because of the shares that they own in the business. So I think if you go back to, you know, when I went to uni 30 years ago, um, it was very uncommon to own shares in the company that you work for. It wasn't talked about. It wasn't something we didn't learn it at uni when I have an accounting degree. It was never discussed at all. Now, it's actually quite quite common. You know, there's a massive increase in young people trading listed securities. You know, you've read about Robin Hood and you've read about during COVID, lots of people actually trading in shares. That's just an education piece. They actually understand now what equity is. Australia is a little bit different. We, you know, our preference normally, our first investment is normally to buy a home, buy a property. Now, if you go to the United States, that's completely the reverse. Most people start with buying shares or stocks, as they call them over there. So there's a bit of a psychological difference, but I think it's about education. I think if people understand what it means to own equity in the business they work for and how that can actually help them build wealth over time, then that's a win for the employee. As I said, it's nearly always a win for the employer and the company, the business, because you're better off with with having those people locked in and motivated. But I I think the tide's turning. I think people are starting to understand how these work hugely common and popular in the United States and the UK and so on. They've got some even better, generous, more generous tax concessions than what we've got here. But it's starting to catch on here. It's certainly increasing and people are being more aware of it.
0: So so Craig, at what level? I mean, so as a, as a as a general guide and I and I and I I want to work step through your 21 step process that you've developed and refined over the years. But I want to just i finish off on the ESOP question is yep. Um, at what level do you start or do companies start bringing people in? Like, is that something that, you know, the day one you employ somebody new, they know that there's an ESOP or is it is it, you know, when they've hit a the five-year mark or a 10-year mark or, you know, you've identified them as key? Is there a guide to that?
2: Yeah, I think I've got good examples of clients doing both. I've got several clients that are using an employee share plan to attract staff. So basically... You know, going and, and attracting someone and saying, you know, John, we want you to come and work for us. And by the way, we've got an employee share plan. And as long as you're still here in 12 months, you can go into that plan. And here's the rules. And, and or, John, come and work for us. And as long as you meet these three KPIs around, it might be sales, it might be new business, it might be whatever the KPIs are, then you can enter the employee share plan. So it's actually being used as a as a really strong recruiting tool. Because it's much more valuable to say that to, to say, John, you know, you earn 100 grand now, I'll pay you 105. John goes, okay, whatever, I'll go back to my boss and he'll probably pay me 110, how's that help me? <laughs> but an employee share plan is a different offer. The other example is quite right. There's also lots of plans where, you know, there's lots of companies that have got staff that have worked for them for quite a long time who might just say, look, you know, once you've been here two years, you're eligible to join the plan and we'll make you an offer and we'll tell you what the rules are. And if you want to join the plan at that point, you can. We can't force you to join, but there's an offer there. One of the greatest myths is that employees aren't interested in this. We would have had, through clients, we would have had eight or 900 employees offered uh, entry into an employee share plan. And I can remember only two that have ever said no. Only two out of eight or 900. Employees like the plan as long as they're educated in what it is and how it works. The education piece is pretty critical.
0: I mean, let me throw a quick one there, and just, and then we'll finish it off. The the in in the mortgage industry, um, and and you obviously know mm. that one of my businesses is in that space. Mm. I have a combination of full time payg employees and subcontractors who are mortgage brokers, and some of them have been here with us a long time. You know, off the top of your head, you know, how would you bring in someone who's a subcontractor, not actually an employee? But they have shown an amazing degree of loyalty over ten years as a as a broker. How would you you know? Can you extend a, a, a an ESOP to a subcontract staff?
2: Yeah, as long as you use the correct structure. So the structure we use is called a peak performance trust, and I've got multiple examples of clients that have included subcontractors in their employee share plan. They treat them as if they're an employee. Um, they've got rules around entry and exit and all those sorts of things as well. But you can certainly include subcontractors because that, that, that sort of gig economy approach now is actually quite common. You know, there are lots of businesses like you've just described that have got subcontractors. So, yeah, you can do it, absolutely.
1: Excellent. Craig, I've got one hour on the clock here, mate, and I'm sorry our time is up. <laughs> um, it goes so quick, doesn't it? Really interesting discussion. So... If our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, maybe they want to ask some questions or maybe they want to set up their own employee share ownership plan or do something about succession, what's the best way for them to contact you?
2: It's just through our website. There's a stack of information on there. There's checklists and white papers and tools they can download to read about employee share plans or succession. So it's just www.succession.plus. And there's a stack of information on there. It's all free. They can go and download, have a read. And of course, if they want to reach out, there's phone number and email details on there as well. I'm happy to have a chat to anyone to see if we can help.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much, Craig, uh, for joining us today on the Business Excellence Podcast. This is Rail Bricker signing off for another edition of the Business Excellence Podcast with a reminder to pop along to excellencepodcast.com www.excellencepodcast.com for a heap of free resources that are available to you to help you on your journey to excellence this is Railbricker signing off